The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of Thy Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which Thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with Thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. It's great to see such a nice crowd here today, and I understand we have about 15 to 20 people um, still on the uh, webinar, so they're live streaming with us today. We're trying to do that. We're going to see how effectively that works today, because this is a little bit different format, but we actually had some people who were joining us from England, as you know, when we were doing this via Zoom, and they were hoping that we could continue to do this. So we're going to give it our best shot. We'll see how it works. But today we are beginning the study of a new book. We are beginning a study of the book of James. So let me encourage you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, uh, to do that in the future. Um, That wonderful colic that I read to you says, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. Well, it's pretty hard to read, mark it, and learn it, let alone inwardly digest it if you don't have it in front of you. So let me encourage you to bring Bibles with you when you come to this class. I'm going to assume that if you're on your phone... You are on the Bible, and not on eBay or something like that, but actually studying the Word with us. I decided we would start with the book of James for a couple of reasons. It was not my first choice, to be perfectly honest with you. It was my intention as we started this new semester that we would start with the book of Romans. There are two books that I really enjoy teaching that I've always felt were absolutely necessary for a pastor to work through in the life of a parish, and those two books were the Gospel of John and the Book of Romans. And so that had been my original intention. And then I began to see the rising number of COVID cases, and I was wondering exactly what might possibly happen. And I decided that perhaps what we needed was a book that was not so weighty, not so difficult as Paul's epistle to the Romans. If you've read Romans, then you know it's, it's like a great legal brief, one argument builds upon another. And it's not the sort of book that you can simply rush through. You get halfway through and all of a sudden we discover that we have to go virtual again. It's not the sort of book that you can just rush through and finish it up. It really does take time and effort to get through it. In fact, just to warn you, the last time I taught the book of Romans, it took me over four years to do so. So, you know, the Lord may come again. You never know before we finish the epistle to the Romans. But I'm thinking to myself, we're dealing with all of these rising cases and these variants and they're highly contagious and so forth. What do I need? I mean, I need a short book and a book that if things are interrupted, we are able to sort of speed through to the end. And so I decided to choose the letter of James. The more I've studied the letter of James, though, I've discovered that this is anything but a lightweight letter. It is a neglected letter. There's no doubt about that, but it is Neglected, I think, in large measure because it is not lightweight. I pointed out to you on Sunday in the sermon, for those of you who heard it, that one of the reasons that James may be a neglected book is because that great giant, the reformer Martin Luther, did not like the book of James. In fact, he he disliked this book more than any other book in the Bible, the book of James. And there's a very good reason for that. If you know Luther's story, you know that Luther had been an Augustinian monk, and he spent a great portion of his life trying to earn God's favor. He felt that that's how you managed to find your way into the heavenly kingdom. Uh, You did it by doing it the old-fashioned way, by earning your salvation. And he was a very devout monk. He became a monk because he made a promise to St. Anne. He was caught in a lightning storm on one occasion and was actually struck by lightning. Luther was. And he was knocked into a ditch. He was temporarily paralyzed. The ditch was filling with water. And he made one of those prayers that we sometimes utter in desperation, those promises that we make to God uh, that we don't think we'll ever have to fulfill. He said, St. Anne, if you save me, I'll become a monk. Well, he survived. And um, true to his word, Luther became a monk. And he didn't just become a monk. He He entered the strictest order in the Roman church at that time. 
he entered the Augustinian order. And he was a devout monk. Uh, He went to Mass on a daily basis. He went to confession. He did all of the acts of contrition. He made his pilgrimages to the various sites. He did everything that was required. Anyone looking at Luther's life from the outside would have said, this is a devout man, this is a holy man. But the problem for Luther was an inner turmoil. He just never felt as though he was truly accepted by God. No matter how hard he worked, no matter how many acts he did, he never really felt as though he had been accepted by God. Until one day he was reading from that first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And he read those immortal words, the just shall live by faith. That is to say, those who are lined up with God, that's what the word just means, to be justified means to be lined up with God. Those who are in a right relationship with God are in a right relationship with God. Why? Because of faith, not by works. And the more he read of Paul's writings, the more he realized that this was a continuous theme. This was a thread that ran through all of Paul's writings. You certainly see that when you get to the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2, you are saved by grace through faith and what? Not by works. Paul is very clear. He doesn't just tell us how we're saved. He tells us how we're not saved. You're saved by grace, through faith, and not by works. And that was liberating for Martin Luther. It was liberating for this man who had tried so hard to earn God's favor and yet never felt as though he'd been accepted, always felt unworthy. And all of a sudden he discovered it was not what he did, it's what Christ had done on his behalf. And all he did was receive that by faith. And so he referred to that great doctrine of justification by grace through faith as the doctrine of the standing church. It's on this doctrine, Luther said, that the church stands or falls. And it was because the church of his day was not teaching that that he nailed 95 complaints to the door of the cathedral church in Wittenberg. And he sparked what we call a reformation which ultimately turned into a revolution. But then... Martin Luther came to the book of James, and he read these words, faith without works is dead. And he did not like those words at all. That seemed to him to be a contradiction of everything that Paul had taught, a contradiction of everything that had given him liberty. And so it had been Luther's great desire to really omit the book of James. If he had been within his power, uh, he would have torn this book right out of the New Testament and gotten rid of it. Now, he didn't ultimately do that. Thanks be to God. Luther didn't take it upon himself to omit James from the canon. But he didn't like this book, and he referred to it as a right, strawy epistle. An epistle of straw, meaning that it didn't have the weight, didn't have the magnitude of the other New Testament books. And because Luther has come down to us as Protestants, as this great champion of the faith, I think this is one of the reasons why we have a tendency to neglect the book of James. Because after all, if Luther says it's a right, strawy epistle, then it must be so. But as I pointed out to you on Sunday in the sermon, sometimes even great men like Martin Luther can be short-sighted. And that was the case. Luther really was not reading James correctly. When the church included James in the canon and Paul side by side, as it were, they realized that these two men were not contradicting each other. These two men were complementing each other. And that is something that Luther needed to learn. I don't know that he ever learned that lesson, but it's certainly a lesson that you and I need to learn. But that's one reason, I think, why the book of James is often neglected. But I think there's another reason why the book of James is neglected. And it's because the book of James is an eminently practical book. It's a practical book. And sometimes it's a whole lot easier for us to engage in debates over esoteric subjects. Get bogged down in theological debates. You know, what is the nature of the Eucharist? Is Christ truly present in the Eucharist? Is it a spiritual presence? Is it an actual physical presence? Is this just a memorial? Those are the kinds of things we like to get bogged down in. That's not to say that those kinds of debates are unimportant. I think those debates are very important. I went to seminary to learn about those debates. 
But when all is said and done, are those matters of the utmost importance? Well, I think Jesus himself would say that they're not of the utmost importance. It was Jesus, after all, who said, this is my body, but at the same time he said, do this in remembrance of me. I think C.S. Lewis got it right when it came to the Eucharist. Lewis said, Jesus said, take and eat, not take and understand. So we want to acknowledge that there's a mystery here involved. But it is the way we like to get engaged in this sorts of thing. And sometimes when we get engaged in those kinds of debates, we really miss the more practical things. You know, if you think about Jesus' teaching, the teaching of our Lord, Jesus did not engage in a whole lot of theological debates, did he? Most of his teaching was very practical. You never hear a long treatise on the doctrine of justification by grace through faith from Jesus. Now, that's not to say that he didn't teach it. He made it very clear that he came into this world to be an atoning sacrifice for your sin and for mine. And he certainly taught that faith is an incredible, important part of what it means to be a Christian. But Jesus didn't engage in those long theological debates. Now, that's something that Paul did. Paul had that kind of a mind. He was, after all, a Pharisee. He was trained in a legal profession. That's the sort of thing that he engaged in. But you don't hear that sort of thing from Jesus. What you hear from Jesus oftentimes is something very practical, don't you? But sometimes when we're dealing with practical things, it ceases to be preaching and it becomes meddling. You know, we Americans are practical people. I mean, we like practical things. We like how to. Tell me how to do it. How to lose weight in 30 days. You know, that, we like that sort of thing. How to do that? I've never discovered the true secret to that, by the way. But how to lose your COVID-10 in 30 days? That's, you know, the sort of thing that we like. We like practical teaching like that. But practical teaching sometimes can be meddlesome. And that is certainly the case with the book of James. No, James doesn't talk about justification by grace through faith. He doesn't talk about the nature of the Eucharist so much, but he does talk about taming your tongue. He does talk about living a life of purity and righteousness and holiness. And he does talk about the kind of company that you keep, the friends that you have. And he does talk about such things as caring for the widowed and the orphaned and the poor, and the homeless. And let's be honest, those are the sorts of things that make us uncomfortable, aren't they? Those are the things that sort of fill us with a sense of guilt, sometimes even a sense of dread. And we would much rather, if we're honest with ourselves, engage in those esoteric discussions rather than deal with the problem of our own tongue. And so that's one of the reasons why I think James, if for no other reason is a neglected book today because it really is a mirror. James is holding up a mirror to our lives so that we might see ourselves as we really are. And so it is a neglected book, but it's a very important book, especially if we are going to be the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it may be easier for us to get through James than it is for Romans, but we may discover that it pricks our conscience more even than Romans. Now let me just do a little bit of discussion about who wrote this book. Who is James, after all? Everybody knows about James, but we really don't know who James is. And part of that is due to the fact that there were a number of men in the New Testament known as James. One of them is James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. James and John were known as the sons of thunder, now, these were the two men that when Jesus came along, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he said, come and follow me. And we're told that they left their father Zebedee in the boat, and they went and they followed the Lord. That's one James. He is a possible author of this book. You'll notice the way the, begin, the letter begins. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion readings. He doesn't tell us exactly who he is. He doesn't say, I'm James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. He doesn't do that. So we're left to guess as to who this author might be. But I think we can narrow it down. And some have said that perhaps it's James, the brother of John. 
He was the first apostle, incidentally, to be martyred. Sometime around the year 44 A.D. Only about 11 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. So very early on in the church's history. The first of the apostles to be martyred. Certainly not the last, but the first. But it's for this very reason that most scholars do not believe that he is the author of this book. Because there are a lot of indicators in this book that it was probably written sometime around the year 60 A.D. And if this James died in 44, he could not possibly be the author. So most scholars do not hold that it is James the brother of John. The other James that is mentioned is James, the son of Alphaeus. He's sometimes referred to in the New Testament as James the Less, to distinguish him from James the brother of John, who's sometimes referred to James as James the Greater. James the Less. The problem with James the Less as being a possible author is that we really don't know a whole lot about James the Less. He's mentioned in the New Testament, but that's about it. He's mentioned by name. He is one of the apostles, but we really don't know a whole lot about him or about his ministry. He certainly doesn't seem to be the kind of individual that would carry the weight and the authority that would include him in the canon. So most scholars do not believe that it's James the son of Alphaeus, James the less, or James the brother of John, the first apostolic martyr. Which leaves us with a third John. And that is the one who's referred to as James the brother of our Lord. Now he would be the half-brother of Jesus, That is to say, he would have been the child of Mary and Joseph, the elder of the uh, other siblings of Jesus. But that's how he's referred to, James, the brother of our Lord. He's mentioned nine times in the New Testament, and every time he's mentioned, it's in a significant passage. So he's not like James, uh, the son of Alphaeus, who's just sort of mentioned in passing. This is a man who plays a critical role in the New Testament. For example, we're told that it was James, the brother of our Lord, who presided over the very first council in the history of the church, what was known as the Jerusalem Council. You may recall that Paul and Barnabas went off on that first missionary journey sent off by the church in Antioch, and they went down to the coast, and they went to Cyprus, and then they went up to Pisidian Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe, and they preached the gospel, and in all of those places, Gentiles were converted, and the church began to grow. But that sparked a controversy in the church. Gentiles could certainly become Christians, but the question arose, how did they become Christians? Did they have to first become Jews before they could become Christians? And there were some who argued, oh yes, Gentiles could be saved, but they had to first be circumcised. They had to go through all the rites of purity that the Jews required in order to become a Christian. And of course, Paul and Barnabas were arguing, no, the only thing that was required was to have faith in Jesus Christ. And there was this discussion, that's putting it mildly, to be perfectly honest with you. There was this great debate in the life of the church. And so the fathers of the church, the apostles, called the members together and they had a synod. They they had a council of the church where they sat down, asked for the grace of the Holy Spirit, and they reasoned together. And they came to the conclusion that, yes, Paul and Barnabas were correct, that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. Well, guess who it was that presided over that first church council? It was James. James, of all people. We also know that James, from one of these passages in the New Testament, not only was the brother of the Lord, he was the skeptic. You know, sometimes the hardest people to persuade are the members of your own household. Have you ever found that to be true? You know, you can talk to almost anybody else about Jesus, but when it comes to your family members, that can really be tough going. Jesus found that to be the case, incidentally. We're told when he went back to Nazareth, it was there that he could do no great work because of their lack of faith. You know what they kept saying about Jesus? Oh, we know who you are. Oh, we know you. You're the carpenter's son. Don't come in here talking about being the Savior and the Messiah and all that sort of thing. We know where you come from. Paul found that to be difficult after his conversion. There were lots of people who said, oh, we remember what you were like, Paul, before. You know, that's a terrible thing when people are always bringing up your past and throwing it up in your face, as if there's no such thing as redemption. Well, that's the way it was for James. James had been a skeptic. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't until after the resurrection, think about that, 
It was not until after the resurrection that Jesus appeared to his brother and James was convinced. But once he was convinced, he was thoroughly convinced. And he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, of all places. That's what Jesus had said to his disciples. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and finally to the ends of the earth. And James became the leader of that church right there in Jerusalem where Christianity was born at the site of the death and resurrection of the Savior. And finally, he became the great minister among the Jews. Paul, as you know, would become the great minister among the Gentiles. Peter would actually be the first of the apostles to preach among the Gentiles. But James's ministry was almost exclusively among the Jews. Among these people who had all of the benefits, the law and the prophets but who had not received Jesus. And James labored among those people, his people, to bring them to faith. Which helps us to understand that very first verse of this letter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Twelve tribes, the Jews. The Jews of the Diaspora as well as the Jews of Jerusalem. That is, those Jews that were scattered throughout the earth. James saw himself as being called to be an apostle. Now, he wasn't one of the original twelve, but Paul refers to him as an apostle. That is, an eyewitness to the resurrection. Just as Paul was an eyewitness to the resurrection. Paul wasn't one of the original twelve, but he was called to be an apostle, as he said, born out of time. And that's what James was. James was called to be an apostle one born out of time. So that's who James is. That's why this book is neglected. Let's just jump right into it today and take a look at it because that's exactly what James does. He shows how practical he is by jumping right in to one of the greatest questions that human beings ask. One of the biggest questions that human beings... I have to say as a pastor, of all the questions I get... This is probably the one that people ask more than any other. Now, sometimes they'll ask questions like, well, what is God's will for my life? Should I take that job or should I take that job? Should I move to that city or that other city? Should I marry this woman or that woman? Sometimes you get questions like that. I want to know what God's will is for my life on a daily basis. But I have to say that next to that, the question that I'm asked more than any other has to do with the subject that James starts out with here, and that's the question of suffering. Why does God allow suffering to occur? How many of you have ever wondered that? Why does God allow suffering to occur? If you've never asked that question, you've not been thinking very deeply. Because sooner or later, we all face it, don't we? Every single one of us, sooner or later, faces difficulty. And that's exactly what James deals with here at the beginning of this epistle. So let's just go ahead and read through some of these opening verses. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, 
and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There it is, right there at the beginning. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It is interesting, isn't it, that James doesn't say, count it all joy, my friends, if you meet trials. He assumes that sooner or later, we will. He's not the only New Testament author to recognize this fact. In this life, you will have tribulation. You know who said that? Jesus said that. And Jesus didn't say, in this life, you may have tribulation. He didn't say, in this life, it's likely you're going to have tribulation. He was emphatic about it. He said, in this life, you will have tribulation. And he doesn't say, if you're evil, you're going to have tribulation. If you're sinful, you're going to have tribulation. If you lack faith, you're going to have tribulation. He's speaking to the disciples, and he said, in this life, you will have it. And sure enough, if you live long enough, you will face suffering, difficulty, trouble. Why does God allow that to happen? All kinds of answers have been given over the course of the centuries. One was given about 30 years ago by a Jewish rabbi by the name of Harold S. Kushner. Now, Kushner's story is somewhat tragic. He lost a child. And he was wrestling with why God would allow that to happen. Obviously, he was a rabbi, so he was a theist. He believed in God, but here he was. He had lost a child. It's probably the worst thing that can happen to an individual to lose a child, and he's struggling with that. He's wrestling with that. He's trying to make sense of how a good God could allow that sort of thing to happen. And he wrote that book, which became a classic. Over four million copies have been sold and read of that book alone. Now, what did Harold Kushner conclude? He concluded that God is good, but God is not almighty. That's how he made sense of suffering in the world, that there is a good God, he is a benevolent deity, but he's not an all-powerful God. And that's why suffering occurs to good people. Now, of course, the first assumption that he makes is that people are good. And that in and of itself is a problem. But that's one answer that has been given by people. Well, I want you to notice that James says that there are other answers to the problem of suffering. The first thing that he does is he acknowledges, as I said, that suffering and difficulty are the fate of all human beings. Not just the good and not just the evil. It's not just that bad things happen to good people. They happen to bad people as well. They happen to all people. And that's what James acknowledges. That's what he's talking about in verse 9 when he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. What James is really saying is they're both going to pass away. The poor are going to pass away. We know that. But so are the rich. When you die, how much are you going to leave behind? I can tell you exactly. You're going to leave all behind. You're taking nothing with you. How much are you going to leave behind? You're going to leave it all behind. In the Middle East, they have a proverb. There are no pockets in a burial shroud. Well, that's what he's saying. Jesus said something very similar in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Now, Jesus is doing it in the positive sense. James is doing it in the negative sense, but it's the same message. When Jesus says the rain falls on the just and the unjust, rain is not a bad thing. You know, when we think somebody raining on us, oh, that's, that's depressing. We like a sunny day. But if you've ever been to the Middle East, you want rain. Rain is a blessing. 
And so when it rains, that is a blessing upon a dry and parched land. Jesus is saying blessings come to all people, to the just and to the unjust. James is saying trouble comes to all people, to the rich and the poor, both alike. The same is true, not just with riches, but with fame, with power, with position. We sometimes refer to this as fickle fate. You ever notice how somebody can be on the top of the world one minute and then at the bottom of the heap the next? Let me tell you something. That is American politics. A man can be a hero one minute and a villain the next. And it can happen overnight. I'm not going to talk about any recent administrations because that would be far too controversial and James is controversial enough. But let me just go back to George H.W. Bush. You remember when we had the first Gulf War? George H.W. Bush put together this remarkable coalition. He'd had a great deal of experience in foreign service as a diplomat and so forth. He put together this remarkable coalition. And I remember being in a political science class in college when he was was president. We were discussing the first Gulf War. And it was astonishing. The professor pointed out that he had the highest approval rating. George H.W. Bush... Read my lips, no new taxes Bush, had the highest approval rating of any president in the 20th century. And a year later, he's voted out of office. And he voted out of office because while things were going fine on the foreign scene, things were not going so well on the domestic scene. See how fickle people can be? How fickle circumstances can be? How fickle fate can be? Well, that's what James is talking about. It's true. You can have fame, you can have power, you can position, and you can lose all of those tomorrow. Just last night, I came across a very interesting article. Just last night. How many of you remember that English actor? He was a character actor named Terry Thomas. Anybody remember him? Had the big gap at his teeth. He was always in those comedies like It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and those men in their flying machines. Famous English actor. They said he lived the life. He had three houses, one in Palm Beach, one out in Hollywood. He had a house in London and in Grosvenor Square. He had it all. You know where he died? In abject poverty. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and it took all of his fortune. And he died in a one-bedroom flat in London. How quickly our circumstances can change. And James is not trying to depress us here. He just wants to be realistic. He's not saying it's always going to be easy. It's sometimes going to be difficult. Now, when circumstances go sour, when things go south, probably shouldn't use that expression, south. That doesn't, <laughs> doesn't sound good. When things go awry, let's put it that way, when things go awry... There are two ways to ask the question, why? One way to ask God the question, why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing suffering? Is to shake your fist at God in terms of an accusation. Why are you letting this happen to me? That's one way to ask God the question. But as I said, it's not so much an inquiry as it is an accusation, isn't it? In other words, this should not be happening to me. It's sort of like Martha when she went out to meet Jesus on the road. And he arrived there, and of course her brother had just died, and she goes out there with her hands on her hips, and she looks at him, and she says, Hey! That's the Miller Amplified version, but you know. Hey! If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now that's an accusation. You see. That's an accusation. And sometimes we can ask God... Why are you letting this happen to me? As if to say, this is unjust. But there's another way to ask that question. And that's by acknowledging the fact that, you know, our horizons are somewhat limited. That we do not, as Paul says, see things clearly. We see through a glass darkly. It's by acknowledging the fact that God's ways are not our ways, that His ways are so much higher than our ways, that if He were to explain to us why He's allowing something to happen, our finite minds wouldn't be able to grasp it anyway. 
And so we approach the question with humility. We still ask the question, but we approach it with humility as the great saints have done in the past when they face difficulty. And we ask the question, Lord, why? Help me to understand. Help me to trust. And when terrible things are happening to me, there is some purpose in this. Two ways to ask the same question. Why is this suffering or misery coming into my life? I'm going to try to round out today with just taking a look at four biblical ways of looking at suffering. So if you've ever struggled with this, these are four biblical ways of looking at suffering. There are lots of answers to the question. I will say right from the beginning, there are no simple answers. This is a complex question. And Christians down through the ages have acknowledged that. I would have to say if there's one great threat to the Christian faith. It's this question of why God allows suffering to occur. So there are answers, but I'm going to be honest with you, they're not simple answers. There's no trite answer to the question of suffering. But there are answers. First answer is that some suffering, not all suffering, but some suffering is just the lot of all humanity. Some of the suffering that comes into our life is simply the result of living in the world in which we live, folks. We live in a broken and fallen world. Now, that doesn't answer the question why some people suffer more than other people, but it does answer the question why some people suffer. It's just the result of living in the world in which we live. I mean, let's be honest. If you are devastated, if your home is devastated as a result of a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake, all of which can happen to us here in Charleston, let's be honest, because all have happened to people here in Charleston, that's not the result of anything that we've done, is it? Sometimes that's just the result of living where you do. Tectonic plates will do what they'll do. They'll shift, and when they shift, which is a purely natural thing, It's actually necessary for the planet, but when tectonic plates shift, what happens? Earthquakes occur, and earthquakes cause a great deal of damage, destruction, misery, pain, suffering, death, and all the other things that attend those, tsunamis and so forth that come as a consequence. That is not the result of anything that anybody has done. That is simply the result of living in this world. Now, you might ask the question, well, why didn't God make a different world? Well, that assumes that there could be a better world. And that's a big assumption. Because God is the one who determines what is good and what is not. What's beneficial and what isn't. This is what Job had to learn. Job, in chapter 5, verse 7 of that great book, says that man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. You know, you think about that. That's an extraordinary statement. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Now, the word that is translated as sparks in that passage is actually a combination of two Hebrew words, and it literally means sons of the flame. It's almost as though James is saying that each successive generation is thrown on the ash heap of the one that went before, and it burns up, and like sparks flies into the sky, and the next generation has come, and it's thrown on the ash heap, and it eventually combusts as well and disappears. That's what what Job is saying. He's saying that, you know, this is the lot of humanity. Man is born to trouble. As surely as sparks fly upward. You have something very similar in Luke chapter 13. Keep your finger there in James and turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 13 for just a moment. This is a rather bizarre story in the Gospels. But Jesus tackles this whole question of suffering head on. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had filled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Apparently, there were people who were struggling, even in Jesus' day, with this question of suffering. And there were two events that had occurred, and they were troubled by them. Everybody's troubled by suffering, folks. This is not a new phenomenon, not just for 21st century people. This was a problem in the first century as well. And they came to Jesus, and they're trying to make sense of suffering. And the only way they knew how to do it was to assume that if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong, and you're experiencing divine retribution as a consequence. And so they knew that there were some Galileans who had been in the act of worshiping. They're worshiping. And Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of the time, had come in and he had massacred them all, put them all to the sword. That's what's meant by that expression, mingled their blood with that of their sacrifices. So try to put into your mind people in church and the government comes in and just slaughters them wholesale. In the act of worship. They're not engaged in any kind of act of sedition against the state. They're just massacred. Because the Romans could be cruel, and Pontius Pilate could be exceedingly cruel. And so he asks the question, they're coming to him, they said, they must have been terrible to have endured that kind of a horrible fate. And what does Jesus say? You think that that's why they suffered? He said, I tell you the truth, the same thing can happen to you. And then he goes on to refer to something else. He said, are those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? Apparently there was a tower and it had collapsed about a year ago. Do you remember that apartment building in London that collapsed and killed all of those people? Did they do anything to deserve that necessarily? Jesus would say the same thing could happen to you, the same thing could happen to me. So we have to acknowledge the fact that sometimes suffering comes into our life because this is the common lot of humanity. Don't always assume that if you're going through a tough time or you're suffering, that you've done something wrong and God is out to get you. That's the first thing you need to understand. Is that God is not necessarily out to get you because you are suffering. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So some suffering is the common lot of all humanity. Here's the second way of looking at suffering. Some suffering is self-inflicted. Sometimes we are the author, let's be honest, of our own misery. We don't like to think of it that way, but we are. You know, the person who smokes for 60 years and then develops lung cancer can hardly blame God for that. Now, we want to, But anybody that's engaged in any kind of destructive lifestyle, whether that be promiscuous sex or whether that be drug addiction or whatever it may be, and we begin to suffer physically or mentally or emotionally as a consequence of that, we can hardly blame that on God. Using one of the examples that James uses here, he talks about the rich man who what? Is humiliated. Look again at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man, verse 10, in his humiliation. In other words, this is a rich man who had it all, like Terry Thomas, and then he's humiliated, he loses it all. Now, I want you to notice, James doesn't say he lost it all because he was wicked. Maybe he lost it because, yeah, he came down with Parkinson's and it took everything that he had to try to deal with that. But, of course, there are those times when sometimes we do lose it all because we've been foolish. Risky business ventures. We want to get to the top of the heap. We don't want to be calm. We don't want to invest in something that is going to pay off in the long run. We want to get to the top of the heap right now. And so we engage in risky risky business ventures and we lose everything. Can we blame God for that? I think we have to acknowledge that, yes, sometimes suffering comes into our life because it's the suffering that is common to all humanity, but some suffering, whether we like it or not, let's be honest, is self-inflicted. And we can hardly blame God for that. But there's a third way of looking at suffering. And that is that some suffering comes into our lives in order to build character. To build character. Look at verse 2. 
James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet with trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness will have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, here is a perfect example of where James and Paul are not at odds with each other because James says almost the same thing that Paul says. Paul says almost verbatim the same thing if you look at Romans chapter 5. Here's how Paul puts it. Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. How many of you rejoice in your sufferings? I don't. You're more noble than I am. I can tell you right now, I do not rejoice. I moan, groan, complain, whine, everything. I'm the classic male patient. But he says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. So some suffering produces character, folks. In fact, I would go so far as to say that suffering is really the only thing that does produce character. If you look at the great people in the history of the world, most of them have been through difficult times. Let that be a message to those of you who are parents and grandparents, especially when you want to try to help your children avoid all suffering and disappointment in this life. We don't want them to get hurt. We don't want them to be disappointed. We don't want them to be frustrated. And so we'll do everything in our power to help them avoid that. But in so doing, we also fail to produce men and women of character. I'm just going to give you three simple examples of this. When I think of the presidents of the United States, I think of three men in particular who are extraordinary game changers in the history of the nation. One, of course, was Abraham Lincoln. Nobody can deny that fact, whether you like him or not. Most historians regard Abraham Lincoln as the greatest president we ever had who led the nation through the most difficult time. Now, even if you are hoping that the South will rise again, even if you're hoping for that, we need to rejoice that the war ended the way that it did in 1865 because the 20th century became known as the American century. How different the world would have been if when the war, the First World War was taking place, if America had been divided into two nations. Abraham Lincoln was a great leader in a time of difficulty, but the reason why he was an extraordinary leader is because he lived in an extraordinarily difficult life. Failure after failure after failure. He had run for the Senate multiple times, He'd run for office multiple times. He'd only been elected to Congress once and only to one term. He had lost, I don't know how many times, more than a dozen. And it was all those disappointments, all that long suffering that ultimately produced the kind of man who could lead the nation through its most difficult period. Teddy Roosevelt. Somebody just sent me a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, one of my favorite quotes earlier this week. And it was a little article attached to it, and it had this wonderful description of Teddy Roosevelt. I absolutely loved it. It said, Teddy Roosevelt was a multi-sided man, and every side was like an electric battery. Isn't that a wonderful thing? In other words, no matter what part of his side you touched, you were going to get a shock. That was the kind of man that he was. You know, Teddy Roosevelt was a man's man. He was a naturalist, he was an explorer, he was a soldier, he was a politician, he was an academic, he had it all. And the picture, that picture of Teddy Roosevelt says it all. That's just his character. Charging up San Juan Hill, there is nothing that we can't do. When he went into the presidency, somebody asked him, and he went into the presidency because he was brought into the presidency, he wasn't elected, the president had been assassinated, he comes into office, 
And somebody asked him what he felt like on his first day in office, and he said, bully. I feel bully. But if you know anything about his youth, he was a very sickly young man. He couldn't go out and play games with anybody else. Very sickly. His mother watched over him night and day. But it was a result of all of that that he determined that he would not be, he was a sickly child, he would not be a sickly adult. His sufferings produced character. And the other Roosevelt, who led us through the most difficult time in the 20th century, through the period of the Great Depression, through the Second World War, when we were bombed in Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, completely taken by surprise. This was the man who led the nation, a man who was confined to a wheelchair because he had polio, but he refused to allow that to keep him down. It was that tenacity of spirit that resulted from his sufferings that produced the kind of character that was necessary to forge the alliance that would end fascism and make the world safe for democracy. See, sometimes suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Here's the fourth way to look at suffering biblically. And that is to recognize that some suffering comes into our lives for God's glory. Now, we don't think of it that way. It's hard for us to look at it that way, but the Bible teaches that this is absolutely sometimes, not always, but sometimes the case. It can always be the case, but that's not always the reason the suffering comes into our lives, but it can be used for that purpose. There's a great example of this in John's Gospel. Turn, if you will, to the fourth Gospel. Keep your finger there in James, but turn to John chapter 9. Here's a familiar story. The other story about the tower and the Galileans being massacred by Pilate may not be as familiar to us, but this is one that is familiar to us. Read in John chapter 9, verse 1, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now that's critical. This man was blind, why? From birth. In other words, he hadn't been in a farm accident and lost his eyesight. This man was blind from birth. And the disciples are trying to make sense of that. Why would this man suffer this affliction from birth? Suffering is a conundrum. And so they're, they're trying to make sense of it, and this is what they say. They said, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? There has to be an answer to this, and the only answer we can come up with is either he did something wrong or his parents did something wrong, and that's why he's suffering as he is. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered. And Jesus doesn't say, well, this is to produce character in his life. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It says that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's really what the book of Job is all about, isn't it? Why did Job suffer? If you've read the book of Job, you know that what the book of Job is, is really a great battle between God and Satan, and this man, Job, is caught in the middle. And all of the suffering that comes into his life is to be used as an opportunity to glorify God. Now, the apostles recognize that sometimes that was the case. We're told that in Acts chapter 5, they had been arrested by the Sanhedrin, they had been told not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. Don't speak that name anymore. And, of course, they refused. They knew they had to be obedient to God. They were brought in, and they were publicly flogged. Now, you have to understand that when you were beaten in that day, you were beaten within an inch of your life. The Romans didn't come out and paddle you. They didn't say, go out back and pick a switch. 
They beat you within an inch of your life. That's what Jesus endured, the flogging. The flogging was sometimes so great that the person never made it to crucifixion. That's what happened to the disciples. They were publicly flogged, beaten, 30 lashes perhaps, huge loss of blood, and we're told that they left that place rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Well, what do we do when we're enduring suffering? And we're trying to make sense of it. We're trying to determine why this suffering has come into our life. Is it to build us up into the full stature of Christ? Is it so that we might glorify God? Is it simply the lot of all humanity? Why are we suffering? When you're in the midst of suffering, James encourages us to do two things. And they're right here in this opening chapter. In verse one, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, Not knowledge, but wisdom. That is, wisdom is what, you can take information, you can take knowledge, but wisdom is what makes sense of all of that. He says, if none of this makes sense to you, if you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. So James says, the first thing to do when you're in the midst of suffering is ask God for wisdom. And he said, even if the answer doesn't come right away. You know, God's timing is not our timing. You know, we are impatient people. We're, we live in a fast food society. You know, you go up to McDonald's to the window and you place your order and you get frustrated when the order's not there within three minutes. And, and we've got all of these devices where we get information instantaneously. Well, let me tell you something. God does not operate according to our clock. He will give an answer, but sometimes it does not come as quickly as we would like. What happens when the answer does not come as quickly as we would like? James says, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord who's proven himself to be trustworthy. Look at what he says In verses 13 to the end of this section, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, that this is God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own free will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is James' way of saying when you're going through a tough time and you ask God for wisdom and the answer is not coming right away, trust this that God is still at work in your life, He still loves you, and He's making you into a new creation. That you're going to be the first fruits of something new. One thing to remember about suffering, my friends, is that the Bible is not really interested in why God allows suffering. As I said, in large measure, because even if he were to explain it to us, I'm not sure we'd understand it. All of his plans, all of his purposes for all of humanity, down through the centuries, could we really grasp it? The Bible is not really interested in why we suffer. It's interested in what God is doing in the midst of our suffering. And what God is doing is he is redeeming it He is using it for our good and for the good of those around us. If you're a Christian today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're part of the human race. You're going to suffer. I always say that you're in one of three places. You're either in a storm, you've just come out of a storm, or you're getting ready to head into a storm. And that's true for all of us. But the good news is this, while all people suffer, the Bible is very clear, Christians suffer for a purpose. If you're not a Christian, you suffer for no purpose. But if you're a Christian, 
God is taking even the tragedies, disappointments, and pain in your life. And He is using it to shape you ever more into the image of His blessed Son. The first fruits of a new creation. And for that we can say, thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of James. Already, James jumps into practical matters, things that really tug on our hearts, plague our minds, keep us up in the middle of the night. But like a great pastor, he comes with a reminder that you are still on the throne. You are still sovereign over the affairs of men and women, that your eye is still on the sparrow that falls from the sky. So as we go through this book of James, Lord, as the mirror is held up to our face, as we begin to see ourselves not as we imagine ourselves to be, but as we are, grant us the grace to take his words to heart and to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus until we see him face to face. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, next week... Fanatics for Christ.